0: And and remember, it's not only purely the biology, because you you have to remember that in this country, okay, if you look at the bottom twenty percent socioeconomically they are twice as likely to end up with obesity as the top 20 centi- 20th centile of, of the richest people, okay? And there is no genetic difference between rich people and poor people. It's an accident of birth. And yet there's twice the obesity rates when you're poorer. So it's not only biology. There is a lot of biology to play, but clearly the access to the types of food you have, where you live, you know, your education level, all of this do have a big part to play as well in, in whether or not you end up with obesity, whether or not you end up with many diseases, to be fair. Or whether or not you end
1: up with the beast. eyes wide open, mind racing with existential questions and every mildly embarrassing thing you've done in your life, oh fellow overthinker, I understand, but don't worry, I'm here to talk to you about it. I'll indulge the overthinking. I know there's some existential questions about science and health that are keeping you awake at night, but they don't have to be I'm. Student nutritionist and medical writer will be coming on here every Monday to talk to experts like Dr. Giles Yeo, Dr. Raghav Sharma, and Nina Abed to answer those big questions that you and I have. And that will be season four the big questions. Now let's get on to this episode. Enjoy. Hello, hello. It's another Monday. And this week on The Growth Medium, I'm interviewing Dr. Giles Yeo. Or by the time this episode comes out, it will be Professor. (laughs) So that's exciting. Giles is an obesity researcher at the University of Cambridge. But honestly, you've probably seen him on Instagram, multiple TV shows um, at this point, and other podcasts. Thank you so much, Giles, for coming on.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I always appreciate it when you trust me with the platform because I could be... What if I go rogue? This is always the question.
1: I don't, honestly, <laughs> if you go rogue, I'll, <laughs> I'll probably sit here and think, you know what? He's probably really right about this.
0: <laughs> no, thank. I have a lot of trust in you. Thank you for having me on.
1: No worries. So let's get straight into it. Mm. Giles, can you tell us a little bit about your story? You know, who is Giles Yeo? Bit of an existential question. What led to you becoming an obesity researcher and someone who, you know, you don't just do research, but you also champion education around obesity. What led to that?
0: So I guess I've always liked genetics certainly from an undergraduate so my undergraduate degree was in genetics molecular genetics and then i ended up doing my phd in molecular genetics as well but my phd was in something very weird it was in the genetics of the japanese pufferfish i know it's a it's a long story um, but in effect, I realized that I, that wasn't going to pay my mortgage. And so when I finished my PhD, which was which was in, in Cambridge, I was a trained geneticist. I knew about DNA. I knew about looking, looking at genes. Um, and I went knocking on doors, you know, around the department to try and find a job. And literally, this is what I did. And the second door I knocked on was a, a chap named... Professor Stephen O'Ratley, Professor Sir Stephen O'Ratley, and he, he and his colleague had just discovered the first gene that when mutated caused severe human obesity. So this was 1998, and I joined the lab as a geneticist first looking at severe childhood obesity, like severe, severe. But then over the years, because this was in 1998, a number of things happened. We begin to realize that the genetics of body weight is by its very definition, the genetics of how our brain controls food intake, take. And so we, we slowly became, you know, accidental neuroscientists in in, in in a way. And so that's what I've been doing for the past decade. And then to the last bit of your question about how I then ended up becoming a passionate advocate for, for living with obesity, or at least for people suffering from weight stigma, is that... We stopped, we didn't stop, but in addition to severe, severe obesity, I now study the entire spectrum of body weight. So why people are small, medium, and large. And in doing so, you then begin to realize that, well, a lot of biology is involved. Yet when someone is skinny, they're considered, oh, not only are they beautiful, which is something else to debate, but they are therefore stronger willed and have higher moral fiber. They appear to be, because they're skinny, they appear to be better than someone who who is larger. And I was thinking, well, hang on a second. It is all biology, not purely biology, but there is a lot of biology involved. And it was from that moment, because I was looking at the entire spectrum, I began to realize biology drives many, many, many different things, including our body weight, small, medium, and large. And then that is when I began to think, well, do people need to understand the biology of body weight so that we can tackle weight stigma? So that was a very long answer, but that was a summary in, in effect of how I got to where I did, why where I am now.
1: And... So I did read um, your book, I think, Gene Eating when I was doing my final year dissertation, which, by the way, that was a lifesaver. Absolutely needed it for my dissertation. Thank you. One thing I saw in your book that you mentioned was that severe obesity. Just a question on that. When you first went into your PhD and, you know, you were looking into these genes that caused severe obesity, how did you kind of go from studying this to now studying something that Because, you know, the whole gene mutation, you know, leading to severe, like, hyperphagia, which is, you know, extreme hunger, that's not the common case with obesity. How did you then go into something that's actually affected the everyday person?
0: So, the mutations in these rare genes that cause really, really severe obesity, you know, three-year-olds who are 40 kilos, are very rare. And absolutely, that's not the cause for the... That's not the reason why the vast majority of people are the body size that they are. However... When you actually look at the the broad biology of common body weight, of just body weight, the same pathway appears. So if you have severe mutations in the genes, they cause severe obesity, but these are rare. But if you have very subtle polymorphisms, just very, very subtle genetic changes that all of us have and are not mutations near and next next to these genes, it influences where you set a normal distribution of body weight. So it's just a question of severity of how the pathways are being regulated. In some, they're shut down because of mutations. In others, they may be slightly tuned higher or slightly tuned lower, which is why some people are more hungry and find it more difficult to say no to food than others. So that is another reason why we moved into studying more generalized obesity, because we realized, well, hang on a second, it's the same pathways that are here, just regulated differently.
1: That is so interesting because, I mean, I'm sure you've come across it. We think that obesity is such... I mean, I don't want to say we think it's so simple, but I think the mainstream view is that it's quite, you know, calories in versus calories out. It's often seen as a lazy person's disease. You know, just to set us off on, you know, a little bit of a foundation. Can you explain what obesity is? Why is it so complex and what kind of causes it?
0: So obesity is simple, yet complex. Now we'll go with a simple first. So Obesity is simple in a sense where you do need to eat too much and not move enough. Okay? So there needs to be a caloric imbalance and an energy intake imbalance for you to gain weight. Okay? Cuz that's the physics. You, you you can't get away from from the physic the physics element to it. You need the carbons in in order to put on carbons. This is this is just just what it is. The complexity is not in the physics, interestingly enough. The complexity lies in the why. Why do people behave differently around food? Why do people like to eat different things? Why do people, some people love food and some people not? That is where the complexity lies. That is why it's difficult. Now, now, so each of these little things, why some people like chocolate and some people don't, why some people respond to stress by eating and someone else doesn't, these then influence your eating, therefore influencing your body weight. Now, the moment you think that, it means that everybody has a different feeding behavior. They have different likes and dislikes for certain types of food, which means that if you are trying to tackle obesity, then there is no one-size-fits-all method because everyone who has obesity ends up with obesity for broadly different reasons. You know, maybe maybe they stress eat. Maybe they've had a trauma. Maybe they do have a mutation. Maybe, there's maybe, maybe, maybe. There's many, many different things. And so that is where the complexity um, lies. So I'm not trying to pretend physics doesn't exist. You have to eat more than you burn to gain weight. Why do you eat more? That is very complex.
1: That's a really nice way of putting it. I think, yeah, no, the basics is that, you know, the calories do matter at the end of the day. But what kind of influences that calorie, either intake or metabolism or whatever it is, that's going
0: to be what's different. And, and remember, it's not only purely the biology, mm-hmm. because you, you have to remember that, in this country, okay, if you look at the bottom 20% socioeconomically, they are twice as likely to end up with obesity as the top 20 centi- 20th centile of, of the richest people. Okay, And there is no genetic difference between rich people and poor people It's an accident of birth And yet there's twice the obesity rates when you're poorer So it's not only biology There is a lot of biology to play But clearly the access to the types of food you have Where you live you know, Your education level All of this do have a big part to play as well In, in whether or not you end up with obesity Whether or not you end up with many diseases to be fair But whether or not you end up with obesity
1: Definitely And recently there's also been more information About how something like ethnicity can impact body composition so there is a doctor his name is Mobeen Saeed he has recently come out with research about how famine can impact body composition how you can hold on to excess fat because you know one famine can really impact the way that your ancestors hold on to fat because obviously you don't have enough food going around you want to store more fat to kind of mitigate against that and then something like you know, I'm British Bangladeshi Bengalis have gone through Multiple, multiple, multiple famines. So that also is something that can have an impact on, you know, having an increased likelihood of dealing with obesity. So just all of these factors come together, don't they?
0: They do. Just just to clarify, holding on to the fat is not the problem. That, that doesn't cause the disease. That changes how you look. That does change how you look. But that doesn't. The problem is not holding on to the fat. The problem is holding on to the fat inappropriately. So the, if you are holding on to fat within your fat cells then you're fine. You may not look pretty to yourself or good looking or whatever you want to look like. But if the fat stays in the fat cells, they're fine. Your fat cells are like balloons. They get bigger and they get smaller. Okay, when you gain weight and lose weight. The problem is when we don't store fat safely, it then goes into our liver and our muscles, etc, etc. And you speak about South Asians, so people that look like you. East Asians, people that look like me. We famously cannot store as much fat safely as say white people. Or Polynesians, famously, right? And so as a result, the moment you begin to carry your fat unsafely, that is when you become ill. So it's not about holding on, it's about holding on to it inappropriately.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that distinction. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then that goes into a whole different thing about how do we measure what too much fat is. But I think we'll get onto that later on in the episode because that's quite controversial. Mm. But just in terms of the genetics then, how do genes impact things like hunger and how does this lead to obesity?
0: Okay so as I said we now know that the genetics of body weight is almost by definition the genetics of how our brain influences our feeding behavior. Now how it does this is quite complex and involves multiple different pathways. So I'll, I'll give Two examples, okay, just just two examples. Your brain needs to know two pieces of information in order to influence your feeding behavior. It needs to know how much fat you're carrying because how much fat you're carrying is how long you would survive in a wild without any food. So if your food sources stop today, how long would you live for? So it's an important piece of information to carry. Your brain also needs to know what you're currently eating and what you have just eaten. And these signals are going to come from your stomach and gut, okay? obviously, because that's where, the, that's where the food is. Now, the thing about these signals is they're all hormonal. So they're secreted by fat or by the gut and circulate in the blood. And the brain then senses this to say, how much fat do I have? And how much have I just eaten? Some of the pathways, some of the genes that end up being associated with someone ending up with obesity, influence the sensitivity of your brain, uh, of your brain to these pathways. So for example, Say I have about 20 kilograms of fat on me, broadly speaking. That's probably about right. But say my brain is slightly less sensitive and only senses 18 kilos of fat. My brain's going, 18, 18, I thought I had 20. And so your brain then drives you to eat more in order to get 20 kilos of fat. But you already have 20 kilos of fat. So you get more and you end up getting larger. Then in terms of the eating, imagine if you had 1,000 calories We can talk about calories later, but imagine if we have a thousand calories for dinner, but your brain only senses 800 of those calories. You see where I'm going with this. It then drives you to eat more, even because it's not as sensitive. It doesn't sense how many calories you're eating as well, which is why you can sit down with someone, order exactly the same meal. Even if you're broadly speaking the same size, order exactly the same meal and someone can get full on the same meal whereas you are still hungry and want something else more so those are just two examples fat sensing and also the amount of food we're eating sensing the genes with their genes that are sprinkled all the way throughout those pathways that then influence the sensitivity of our brain to these signals
1: that is so interesting so it's these little little changes in our genes that kind of impact like you said the fat sensing and these you know have like a big impact on how much we're going to eat and how much how also satiated we feel and then Another aspect of it is the calories. You recently come out, was it recently or sorry, last year, you came out with a book called Why Calories Don't Count. A little bit of a provocative title. Mm. (laughs) And I think in that book, you talked about the concept of calorie absorption. So can you explain what this concept is and why it's important in the wider discussion surrounding obesity?
0: Okay, so the concept of why calories don't count is the fact that we don't eat calories, we eat food. And then our body has to work to extract the calories from the food. Calories are a unit of energy. But as you know from eating, and I've used this example in both books, if you have sweet corn, okay, and then you look in the loo the next day, you clearly haven't absorbed, a lot of the sweet corn has not been absorbed. But if you take sweet corn and actually desiccate it and turn it into a cornmeal and you make cornbread or corn tortilla or, or, or whatever it is you do, you know, you, you suddenly are have access to far greater calories that are there. So caloric absorption comes from caloric availability, the availability of calories in a food. And it's how much your body is able to extract from the food versus the total number of calories that are in the food. And for some foods, your body doesn't have to expend nearly any energy at all. These tend to be foods that are high in sugar, because sugar is very easy for your body to absorb, and high in fats, because fat is also very, very efficient for your body to actually break down and absorb. It uses hardly any energy at all. But when you're dealing with other foods, such as foods, protein, such as protein, or such as fiber... Then, I mean, fiber, we can't digest at all. It comes out the other side. And protein is more difficult to digest chemically. And so as a result, while well, people say calorie is a calorie is a calorie, yeah, but then a calorie of protein makes you feel fuller than a calorie of fat, than a calorie of carb in that order. So that is my argument about why calories don't count. It does matter whether or not you are eating a donut, whether or not you're eating a carrot, or whether or not you're eating a steak. It does matter. Because your body will work to differing degrees to extract the calories from there.
1: Interesting. And then just thinking about this calorie availability a little bit more. Mm. Is that in part a reason why something like ultra processed foods might, you know, they have increased calories and they may be more easily available to us? Is there a link there?
0: There's definitely a link there. The thing about ultra processed foods, and for those of you who don't know what it is, it's not processed foods. So, so yogurt is a processed food. Bread is a processed food you know, cooking is a process. Ultra-processed are industrial mm-hmm. processes that we cannot replicate in a domestic kitchen. The problem with ultra-processed foods are a couple of problems. A, we eat too much of it because yeah. 50% of our calories on average in this country come from ultra-processed foods. So that's the pro- that's problem A. We have too much of it. Problem B, because of all the processing that goes into ultra-processed foods, they're called ultra-processed after all, they are inherently lower in protein and lower in fiber. Depending on what the food is. So they're low in protein and low in fiber, which means that they are very calorically available. Okay. For every hundred calories, you get a lot more. Third problem: they lack flavor. And because they lack flavor, you have to replace flavor, which comes from the holy trinity of sugar, salt, and fat. And so ultra-processed foods are low in protein and fiber and high in salt, sugar, and fat and are very available. And because of the being high in sugar, salt, and fat, they're also hyper-palatable. They are moorish. You eat them and you're going, mm, this is excellent stuff. Really, really delicious. And so because they're constructed to be hyperpalatable because of the sugar, fat and salt, we also like to eat them a lot. So it is a toxic mix of low protein, low fiber, high fat sugar, salt and palatability.
1: And then they're not satiating either. So you feel like you want to have more to be able to feel satisfied from it too.
0: And they're not satiating because they take so quick to digest because they don't have fiber and protein. That's exactly right.
1: From what I understand, then, obviously, obesity, hugely complex. We've only really talked about two things here, which is a few genes. We haven't even gone into the genes, actually. I think if we went into that, we'll be here till tomorrow. Um, but hugely complex. And ultimately, obesity is something that affects loads of people. I think, is it 30% of the UK are obese or are living with obesity?
0: Certainly, 30, 40% are getting close to 50 percent are overweight obesity then depends it depends how you define obesity this is the problem okay of how you define obesity if you do it as a pure number then you're right it's around 25 30 but if you deal with how many people are metabolically ill uh, then you get a different number because then you have more people that are going to that are going to be ill not necessarily because they look obese but because, because they carry too much fat unsafely.
1: Okay, let's get into that a little bit mm. then. So um, measuring obesity, hugely controversial. I have some strong feelings about it. One way of measuring obesity, and it's the one that I feel like has been used when I've gone to the GP and I've gone to the doctor, is the BMI, body mass index. So that's, you know, your weight versus your height and you come out with a number. Why is it so controversial? And do you think it's fit for purpose?
0: Hmm. I think it's a very good question, and I am, you'd be not surprised, I have a nuanced answer for this. Now, BMI, as you say, is your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared. So it's a ratio of your height and weight. The problem with the BMI, let me you, let's me let go with the problems first. The problem with the BMI is that's all it takes into account, your height and your weight. It doesn't matter, A, how much muscle you're carrying um, at all versus, versus fat it also doesn't take into account whether or not you're storing your fat safely. So in fact, in fact, let's back away just for three seconds and ask, what do I think obesity means? What is obesity? And to me, the answer is not BMI above 30. That is not the answer. Obesity is carrying too much fat so that it begins to influence your health. And that border differs between different people. So on a personal level, if I go to the GP and you go to the GP, and the doctor, you know, weighs you and gives you a BMI. If the healthcare professional in front of you is making a decision about your treatment purely based on your BMI, that is very poor. Um, in other words, if they don't know your your, your lifestyle, your family history, your, your, you know, all kinds all kinds of things, because it is too blunt a tool, so it is not fit for purpose for personalized medicine. However, why is it still used, and why is it so popular? It's so popular because, on average, the higher your BMI, the more fat you carry. And the more fat you carry, the more likely you are to be ill. Okay, this 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 is the nuance. BMI is very cheap, free in fact. You just need to know your weight and height. So at a population level, if you're a government, a policymaker, a public health expert who wants to try an intervention, um, we're going to have people eating more oranges, whatever. Okay, move more. It is very, very easy to track whether or not you are doing anything at a population level. So BMI will always be useful for population level tracking because it's it's free to measure, but it will always be poor for individualized medicine. We need more information than just your weight in order to tell whether or not you're healthy or not.
1: That's that's I feel like that's what a lot of the controversy surrounding BMI is, because I mean, I've gone to the GP and, you know, they measure my BMI. And that's been the only thing that has been taken into account when I'm given a recommendation, which really, really annoys me. And I think it's something that's really impacted how a lot of people have approached their health. Recently, I've heard of one where a woman unfortunately went in with a stomach ache. Um, She's visibly carrying too much fat. And she's got a high BMI and she had this stomach pain. And the doctor was just like, oh, yeah, it's because you're overweight, you know, lose a little bit of weight. You'll be fine. Turns out it was cancer, which to be fair, this is an extreme example of this. But it is something that happens when we don't look at the whole person. And that's really why my personal feelings about the BMI, especially on a personal level, is just it's not great. You know, if we don't use BMI on like the individual level, what do you think we should be using instead?
0: So uh, I think we are in a transition period of time. I think pe- more and more people are beginning to realize that the BMI is too blunt a tool, but you measure it because it's easy to measure. I think you can make some easy improvements by using your waist to hip ratio. So waist to hip ratio is just your circumference of your waist over the c- circumference of your hip. And what that gives you is that gives you your body shape. And so men famously are, have a big tummy and small bums. Women famously more likely to have big bums and smaller tummies. Okay, broadly speaking, apple shaped, pear shaped, and those shapes influence how you store fat safely. It's still relatively blunt, but it's far better than just taking your BMI into account. Okay, so I think waist to hip ratio need to be taken into um, into account as well. In the future. And this is not work that's done personally by me, but by some of my colleagues, actually, in the, in the university, in my institute here, is there are going to be genes that are associated with safe fat carrying and genes that are associated with not safe fat carrying. And so they will reach a point where we will be able to have a more a sophisticated way of trying to measure whether or not you have, you have too much fat. And I think the healthcare professionals, and I say this, I teach uh, medical students, but the healthcare professionals at the moment are part of the problem. They're not going out to make the trouble, but because they don't deal with obesity, overweight with the new ones it needs and it deserves, and a lot of them don't speak to the the patient in front of them properly with empathy, um, they are part of the problem. So it's it's obviously difficult. If the doctor says, hmm, this person could be carrying too much fat, how do I bring up the subject? Yes, you need to talk about it. But if that is all you're thinking and is blinded, so your, your case, I agree, it is extreme, but if all you see is this person is complaining because they're fat, rather than looking at the underlying issues, cancer, you know, bad backside, whatever. There's many other things that are there, which is nothing to do with your weight. It just so happens that the that, that person is overweight. If that masks your ability to give a good diagnosis and good treatment, then that's part of the problem. And so we and many others within the field are trying to educate, not only the students, which we can get now, but actually go and give conferences to GPs, for example. Okay, how do you speak to, how do you speak to a patient about it? How do you bring up sensitively the body weight? How do you not ignore other signals, but just look at the BMI or, or something like that? So I think we need to, it's a real problem. I completely agree with you. And if the healthcare professionals are a problem, it stops people looking for help. Because people need to look for help, they go. Well, last time I went, they didn't. They didn't, you know, listen to me. Then you don't go. Then you end up with something that's curable, and suddenly you're dead. We have to fix the problem.
1: I agree, and it's something that's so difficult as well. I mean, we're. Go- I'm going really institutional about this, but especially in the UK with the NHS, the GPs are so so overstretched that. It's hard to bring in more...
0: 10 minutes. You know, you're fair, you, you're making quick judgments.
1: Exactly. It's And GPs, it's, just, it's 10 minutes, but also GPs are doing like 50 consultations in a day. So it's a lot for them to handle. I understand kind of that aspect of it as well. So I don't want to put anyone off going to the doctor if you need to go to the doctor. But definitely there needs to be change there. And just on that a little bit more, we know obesity is correlated with poorer health outcomes. But recently, well, I mean, I feel like it's been a bit more recent. We've kind of taken a bit more research into things like weight stigma and how that can impact individual health, you know, both physical and mental. I don't know, we've already touched on this a little bit, but what are your thoughts on weight stigma in, I guess, general general population-wise and also in
0: healthcare? So, so I think, let's deal broadly societally first. Weight stigma is a problem. First of all, it's not nice. Second of all, it's counterproductive. But third of all, and most importantly, it means that the resources are not put in the right place to try and solve the problem. It's undoubted that obesity is a problem at the moment, and I think we can accept that, but we can also do that. Hold two thoughts in your head by saying that obesity, carrying too much fat is a problem, and I'm not blaming the person suffering from the problem, okay? We have to hold these two thoughts in our head. If you deal with weight stigma and say that it's the person's fault, then the interventions, the plans, the policies you put in place are always going to be wrong you're always going to rely on personal responsibility and education rather than fixing the root causes, okay? So poverty, the food environment, things like that, root causes. And so that's why weight stigma is so toxic, because it's stopping the the, the resources go to the right place. Now, from an individual perspective, A is not nice. I don't want to be called whatever names you're calling me. But there are going to be some people who are, are more robust than others, and they bounce off them and they carry on with life. But there are going to be many other people who actually tilt into it, it influences and affects their mental health. And and that is tragedy. Okay, so not only are you physically uh, have the potential to be unhealthy, because you are, you might be carrying too much weight or not enough fat, but then layer on top of that mental health issues. So for those reasons, I think weight stigma are just needs to be removed. It's counterproductive in all ways. It's And it being there is not only a hurdle, it's a blockade into us finding sensible sustainable solutions to actually really try and solve the problem
1: i have two kind of questions coming off the answer so do you think there has been weight stigma in the way kind of clinical trials or scientific studies have gone about i'm just thinking i mean we did an episode with a new nutrition Catherine kimber i think it was last year And one thing that she mentioned was, um, you know, I can't remember which birth control pill it was, but there was a birth control pill. And if you are above a BMI of 35, I believe, then the effectiveness drops to like 76%. And that's not something that we knew from the trials because there wasn't anyone who was above the BMI 35 in those trials. Yeah. Do you think there's been more? Do you think that's an issue?
0: I do think it's an issue. So aside from weight loss drugs, which by definition targets people who are overweight, Most other drugs, certainly in their very beginning, target people who are healthy and, broadly speaking, thinner and actually younger. So this is the same problem with old people and the same problem with kids, to be fair. Um, But it's also the same problem with people who are larger, where the clinical trials, the way people do clinical trials, I think, needs to be overhauled because we need to represent the whole of society. You know, children are are not small adults. Old people are not older people that, you know, there's a whole lot of things. And people with obesity... Are not people who are skinny and, and and healthy. So it is part of the problem. Cancer drugs, that, that example you actually, you actually gave right there, but many other things as well. So I think the weight stigma, and it's not overt. It's not people, you know, being overtly weight stigmarist. They're not like, they're not wearing white hoods and being, you know, but it is the subtle choices that one makes. The the who, what the the patient cohorts that one are choosing that are not being fully taken into fully taken into account uh, undoubtedly it plays a role
1: yeah interesting I want to know more about that because I feel like it's something I mean we've talked about it in terms of you know women also being in clinical trials there's issues with their pregnant people as well um, just you know having a lack of inclusivity when it comes to participants in clinical trials really doesn't you can't then generalize the effects of a drug or whatever it is to everyone because of that
0: The problem with clinical trials is you need to have the time, the effort in order to come and volunteer for, oh no, they pay you, but not that much for the clinical trials. And so it also doesn't target people, for example, who are poorer. They just don't. You're on two minimum wage jobs to feed your kids i'm not going to go suddenly go take time and do a clinical trial so there's that there's that as well
1: yeah definitely and then the second question i had was regarding changing the food environment so in the uk we've had things like the sugar tax that was introduced i think in 2018 and i think was it this february where we now have calorie labeling on menus what's your opinion on that kind of policy
0: once again, I, prob- I have a nuanced answer. Obesity is a public health problem, and so it does require public health solutions. So in other words, there needs to be government intervention, I think, for it to be, for it to be tackled effectively. The problem is, more often than not at the moment, the government interventions are based on wrong assumptions and steeped in weight stigma, okay? So, so, so that is part of the problem. I think certain things about taxation are useful. So, for example, I'm a supporter of taxation of sugary drinks, but I think it should be applied evenly. So no one is going to argue that Coca-Cola or something like that, other drinks are available, is taxed. But there is as much sugar in orange juice. Just saying. It's the same, exactly the same sugar. It's not a different sugar. Uh, Orange juice may have other things in it, like vitamin C and things, but it has as much sugar as Coca-Cola. But they're not taxed. And so I think you've got to apply these legislative moves so you want to limit the amount of salt sugar and fat for example well you have to do it evenly across the board you can't let certain foods have a halo around them of health when they're just as processed or just as unhealthy okay so plant-based foods curiously vegan foods that can be as unhealthy okay i'm that this is not an anti-vegan thing all i'm saying is that for very many people being vegan automatically is healthier when it automatically is not, because it depends what you're actually eating. So I am a supporter of government interventions as long as they're evidence-based and not food-shaming people. And I think that is an absolute crit- critical thing that we need, that we need to do. Uh, the calories, for the reasons I've said, I think we do need to know how much we're eating probably, we do. But surely it's more important than knowing what we are eating. And calories only give you, like the BMI, calories, so calorie is the equivalent of BMI. It gives you a blunt piece of information about that food, okay? The amount of food, but it doesn't tell you the nutritional content. It is blind to the nutritional content of food and hence it is not that useful a number. That's my opinion.
1: Yeah, and I think calories the interesting thing about it is people will only focus on the calories when you give them that information they won't focus on the protein or the fiber or whatever else might be in the food and for a lot of especially women we've had it in our heads that you know you're supposed to have 1200 calories a day that's something that they will go and then take on when they are you know going to a restaurant or a cafe whatever my opinion about the calorie labeling situation is so not entirely sure about it um just because in one way, it's like, can more information hurt? Um, I don't entirely know
0: yet. So let me, let, let, let me answer that question. So I think we probably need information in a different way because let's go, remember, most of our food comes from the supermarket, typically, not the restaurant. We don't eat out every day, okay? So we get all our food from the supermarket and the majority of our food, and the majority, much of our food is prepackaged for any number of different reasons. All the information is on the package, everything protein salt fiber it is all there is it preventing obesity no and the reason so the the reason is not a not a lack of information the reason is that i don't if i don't have my glasses and i go to the, i can't read the damn thing right and so it's the wrong information put in the wrong way that is actually being there at the moment um so i think calories are, are there it's going to be a blunt tool it may have a subtle effect maybe in the short term I think we can be more sophisticated with it.
1: I agree. I I see the um, perspective there. And actually, another random thing that's gone into my head, I'm not entirely sure if you know the answer because I don't know if it's in your realm. But another thing that I've kind of... I'm not sure how much of an issue it is in the UK, but we do have our calorie labelling on, you know, like you said, the supermarket foods. And apparently... In the USA, in North America, the FDA like gives kind of like a 20% leeway with that information. So it can be either 20% higher, 20% lower. It's not entirely accurate. Is that an issue in the UK? And do you think that's... I don't know. I, I don't know if, how much of an effect that might have on people.
0: Calorie labelling is, is a universal thing. There are very, very, very few foods that are purely made in the UK because of globalisation. Pre-packaged food, they tend to be quite universal. So so the major chains. If that we're already doing calorie labeling in the United States, will just port those calorie counts in directly to um to the UK. They may add slightly different n- um things, like they use kcal rather than calories and kilojoules rather than what have you. Um, calories are an estimate anyway, and so part of this plus or minus you, you know percentage, there is already wiggle room built into the calorie. People people worship it and consider it this empirical number that that is there it's not it's 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 an estimate from the word go so it doesn't really matter if they have a little wiggle room built in it's always going to be just a guess
1: interesting interesting thank you for that so i think just to end off we have um you know we have talked a lot about the genes and calorie availability, and you know a lot of po- we ended up going into a lot of policy stuff, which I didn't expect. But you know, some of this can feel a bit doom and gloom for people who are struggling with obesity and do want to lose weight. Give me three lessons, tips, or pieces of advice when it comes to obesity, weight loss, and weight stigma. I know that's really broad, but give me three of your best.
0: Okay, so um, I'll start with something more specific. Okay, just to be helpful <laughs> rather than be negative. So, if someone wants to lose weight okay? Because you feel you want... it. In very many ways, I don't care why you want to lose weight. If you want to lose weight, you want to lose weight, okay? Then what you want to... the, The most effective thing you can do is not necessarily try your favorite celebrity's diet because it may not work for you. You need to know your own eating behavior. So do you like chocolate or not? Do you know you respond to stress by eating or not? Okay? These things. And be honest with yourself. If you want to lose weight, just be honest with yourself. And try and control the environment you can control. So if you love chocolate then maybe don't have it in the house all the time, then you eat less chocolate. Yes, when you go out to the restaurants with friends, you can have chocolate because it's there and you can't control that. Control the environment you can control. And so that would be the first piece of information that, that, I, that, that I have. The second is, I would think about your health rather than your weight. So people want to change their diet and lose weight for different reasons. Maybe they've got a heart problem. Maybe they want to play with their kids more or their grandkids. Maybe they want to be able to do the couch to 5K. Maybe they want whatever. There's a million different reasons. So the question to ask is not what your body weight is. Can you do what you have set out to do? Can you now play with your grandchildren? Can you now walk up the stairs faster, cycle to work? Whatever it is you want to do. And if the answer is yes, I can now do what I want to do. It's not hindering me anymore. Well, so what if you're a few pounds overweight? Okay, I wish I looked like Brad Pitt. But there we go. These are things in life I don't. But am I healthy? Do I think I'm healthy? Yes, I think I can do most of the things I want. I'm never going to be an Olympic athlete. So we equate weight to beauty. This is the tragedy of, of the modern world. I think we want to think about our health. And if you think about your health and doing what you want to do, then your weight will look after itself. You may not be pretty in your eyes in front of the mirror because you want to look like a supermodel or something, or Brad Pitt, but you will be healthy and that should be enough. Oh, and and the final thing, I might as well say the final thing that for those of you who are not overweight, remember that that doesn't make you most morally superior. There is a lot of biology involved. There's a lot of socioeconomic things that are involved. And for many people, obesity is not a choice. They're fighting biology. They're fighting poverty or both. And so mind your own business.
1: I think that's a perfect, perfect way to end it. So I think that's a wrap. Thank you so much again, Giles, for coming on your Insight. As always, I, you know, I've listened to your podcasts. I've read your books. Always incredibly valuable. I think Giles mentioned a study by some colleagues at University of Cambridge. I will go and dig that out and we'll have it linked in the show notes. Again, with all of Giles' links as normal, books, social media, everything. And yeah, thank you again so much. Thanks for having me. Until next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Go ahead and leave a review and rate us, hopefully, five stars on wherever you're listening from. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram, TikTok, and head over to thegrowthmedium.com for more detailed information pieces. See you next week for another episode. Bye!